Welcome to the Oceanside Sanctuary Podcast. We're continuing our Advent series, A Light in the Darkness. Today, Pastor Jason Coker will invite us into the goodness that comes from waiting in his teaching titled, Mary's Magnificent Wait, from Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. And this is, of course, Mary's song or Mary's Magnificat, which goes on to say this. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Now I want to pause there because these joyous words come from a particular context. The context is, of course, this is Mary, the mother of Jesus. She has already begun to form this child in her womb. The Holy Spirit has come and impregnated her. The promised Messiah is literally swelling in her belly. And she meets, right before this passage, she meets with her cousin who is also, also pregnant. And that, that baby in, in this other womb does something remar- remarkable. It leaps in the presence of Mary's baby. So these two babies who are cousins to each other, they sort of react to each other's presence. And when that happens, Mary, in the midst of her pregnancy, she sort of bursts into song. And this is a song, the Magnificat, that has been used throughout the centuries of Christianity to sort of highlight what our response to God's work in our lives can look like. And so I love this song as a kind of a waypoint that sort of directs us to how we respond in those times when we are pregnant with the expectation of God in our lives. So again, Mary said after this this, uh, uh, unusual experience of her child leaping in her womb in response to its cousin, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on me with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on, All generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name. His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown great strength with His arms. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their heart. Now, this is where Mary is in her song, in this kind of poem that she's singing. She's going to make an important transition to what it looks like for God to fulfill God's promise. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. That might sound familiar because in recent weeks, we've been reading old Isaiah prophetic passages that literally depict the promise of God as a promise that raises the valleys and lowers the mountains. And we talked about how that is a powerful sort of poetic image to depict that God is bringing up the lowly, he is bringing up the poor, and he is lowering the proud or those who exploit and take advantage of others. So he's bringing about a kind of equality in the kingdom of God. He goes on to say this, He has filled the hungry with good things, right? That would raise the poor to fill them with good things. And he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. According to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. And so that last line links her song, her sort of joyful response to this event on this day, links her song to the promises that were made 
in the old days to the prophets of God. And so this goes along with our Advent theme, our Advent theme of promise and hope and deliverance and all the good things that should be coming in the future and highlights, I think, that aspect of waiting for that good thing to come because while she's singing this song, while she's uttering this prophetic kind of poem, she's pregnant. In the midst of all of this, the promise, the literal promise of God, has not yet come. It's cooking, right? It's baking in the oven, so to speak. And yet she bursts forth in this song. Now, for me, when I read this passage, it reminds me of a bunch of things. One of the things it reminds me of is that we're really not very good at waiting. Right? If you think about it, being pregnant, and I say this, you know, fully confident that I know exactly what it's like to be pregnant. If you think about it, being pregnant is a little bit like waiting in line for 40 weeks. That's how long pregnancy is. It's 40 weeks. Sometimes we say that it's nine months, but really is a little closer to 10 months. It's 40, well, you know, usually it's supposed to be 40 weeks. Sometimes it's 41 or 42. Sometimes it's 38 or 37. But imagine waiting in line for 40 weeks to get what you want. In the meantime, your body is changing. You're experiencing all kinds of difficulties. It's, it's apparently not an easy time, or so Janelle tells me. There was a time in my life when I actually was a professional waiter in line. That's what I did for a living. I waited in line. Back when I was an older teenager, my job was uh, that of a ticket scalper. You didn't know that that was a real job, but it is. I was a ticket scalper in the LA area, and one of the things that we would do in order to get tickets, in order to sell them, of course, is we'd wait in line at the local Ticketmaster or the local you know, outlet, and we would buy as many tickets as we could to whatever popular concert was coming, and then we'd take those tickets. You know how this works. And we would sell them at a markup, right? I was not the most popular person in town when people wanted to buy those tickets. But I was very popular when it came time to wait in line because, see, I didn't do all the waiting in line. Oh, no. I paid all of my high school friends and flunkies and whoever I could find on the street to wait in line for me. You see, because one of the things you discover when you have to wait in line for tickets is you get up to the front and they'll only allow you to buy six tickets. Because the outlet knows that there are people like me out there trying to take advantage of the system Right? And so they limit how many tickets you buy. So if you can only buy six tickets to the concert, but you want to sell 600 tickets to the concert, that means you're going to need a whole bunch more people to wait in line. So I would recruit my high school friends, and I would recruit literally people off of the street, anybody I could find to wait in line for me. And they would wait in line for me, and I'd pay them like 20 bucks. At the beginning of this little endeavor, what we had to do was we had to sometimes go the night before and camp out on the sidewalk because there were other genuine fans there to buy tickets, and we were ruining the party for them. And so, of course, they'd show up earlier, and so then the next time we'd show up earlier, and the next time they'd show up earlier, and next thing you know, we were pitching tents on the sidewalks the night before, right? And I was bringing van loads of high school teenagers to come that I was paying to stand in line for me. And then Ticketmaster got wind that this is how it works, so they changed their rules. The rules became, it didn't matter when you came, it didn't matter if you were early or not, Whenever you got there, they would hand out a random number. So that way, people like me couldn't game the system, right? It, so I couldn't come the night before and be guaranteed the first spot in line anymore. Instead, I got a wristband that had a number on it, and they would like mix them all up 
so that the first person there wasn't guaranteed the first spot in line. Well, so what did we do? I recruited three times as many people to stand in line, and I would pay them to stand in line not to buy the tickets, but just to get the wristband. Because if I could get the majority of those wristbands, then I would have the best possible chance of getting the first spots in line. So I'd pay people to stand in line for the wristband, and then they'd come around behind the Ticketmaster where I had a van. Yes, it was a van. It was very shady. Right? And the side doors would be open, and people would come up with their wristband, and I would use a little pocket knife, and we'd pick that little like plastic lock on the wristband, take it off, and then we'd wait, and I'd say goodbye to most of those folks, and we'd wait for the Ticketmaster employee to announce the first number online, and we'd run back, and we'd shuffle through the wristbands, and we'd take the best numbers, and then I would pay maybe 10 people to be the first people online. See, we, we broke the system. This is why some of you are libertarians, because you know that no matter how many rules we create, we are able to break the system no matter what, right? And, and I did this, of course, because I needed to make money, and I did this because I wasn't willing to wait. We live in a culture that is increasingly a culture of hustle and a culture of competition. It wasn't enough. For me to have what I had, I had to have more. It wasn't enough for me to have pretty good tickets to sell. I had to have the best tickets to sell because that is how our system works. It's a system that requires you and I to run at an increasingly rapid pace every single day. And every time somebody comes along who runs a little bit faster and works a little bit harder and is just a little bit smarter and is a little bit luckier, then we get pushed down the ladder and our anxiety and anxiousness increases. And the next thing you know, there is no time to ever wait. There's no time to slow down and be patient. There's no time to enjoy what happens when we're forced to wait. And so it's my crazy idea today that one of the things Scripture teaches us is that there is something good that happens in the waiting. And I think pregnancy is really a beautiful depiction of that because as any woman who has been pregnant could tell you, when you are pregnant for 40 weeks and that baby is growing inside of you and forming and becoming what it will be, it might look like the woman is not doing much work. She's just waiting. But her body is working very, very hard. Something amazing is happening inside of her, no matter what it looks like on the outside. Even when a, a woman's pregnancy is fragile and difficult and the doctor says, I want you to go on bed rest, the whole purpose of the bed rest is so that the body can do the work that it needs to do uninterrupted from whatever external factors might cause it to be unhealthy. There's work being done in that period of waiting. And so today I want to suggest to you that as we are waiting for God to bring about God's promise, God's work in our lives, that God is calling us not just to anticipate what God is bringing good in our lives, but God is actually calling us to wait because there is something good that happens in the waiting itself. And there are a few things that I notice here. The first is that part of the work of waiting is to praise. And so when God has promised you something, 
when God has given you a bit of hope, when God has brought to your mind or to your heart an image of something better that could possibly be, and there's nothing that you can do to actually bring it about, all you have to do is wait for that thing to come, for that birthing to happen, that one of the things that we can do during the waiting is we can praise. That we can lift up our voice and we can say, my soul magnifies who God is and what God will do because God is good and mighty and God will bring about exactly what God said he would bring about and sing about it, lift up our voices, praise the God that brings good things. One of the hardest things to do, I've noticed, when we're waiting for something good that we think God has promised, when we're waiting for something good that we desperately need, one of the hardest things to do is to turn to God and thank God for that thing that has not come yet. Instead, we complain. Instead, we get frustrated, we get entitled, we, we get anxious, we accuse God of not remembering us, we accuse God of leading us into a place of failure or death when, when all God is asking us to do is to let go of control, because there's some aspect of the waiting that we can't control. Which brings me to my, my second point, praise really is just a kind of prayer. The second thing I think that we are called to do during a time of waiting is to pray. Uh, and I'm terrible at prayer. I would just much rather do whatever it is that needs to be done. In fact, one of my favorite things to say, like, I'm a pastor, right? So uh, a thing people say to me a lot is when they want me to do something, when they have an agenda for me, when they have a request of me, when they have something that they need, that they think that somehow I'm key to, they'll often come to me and say, none of you do this, by the way, it's all the people who aren't here this week, right? <laughs> One of the things that people will often say to me is, you know, Jason or pastor, what I'd love for you to do is X or Y or Z. And then before I have a chance to say yes or no, they say, just pray about it. Just pray about it. That's always an indication that they've asked me to do something that they think I don't want to do, by the way, right? Before I have a chance to say no, they say, just pray about it. One of the things I learned to say very early on in my ministry life was, I don't have to pray about it. I know exactly what God wants me to do. No. <laughs> or, yes, right? My point is, I'm not very good at prayer really good at just taking action, making a decision, getting things done. In fact, I'm really terrible at waiting. Prayer is one of those tasks that I struggle with and sometimes resist and often, frankly, despise because prayer means that there is nothing I can do to make this thing happen. So all I have left to do is pray. One of my favorite Christian authors is Dallas Willard. Some of you know that. Um, Dallas Willard, one of his famous sayings is, if you have weeds in the garden that need to be pulled, you better not pray. You better just go pull the weeds. Now, Willard said that because very often as Christians, we have the opposite problem, right? 
We have all kinds of problems in our lives that need tending to. We have all kinds of weeds in our lives that need to be pulled. And we have the power, the ability. We're perfectly capable of pulling those weeds. We just don't want to do it. And so therefore we pray, God, would you please weed my garden for me? And that is just when we look so silly to the rest of the world. The rest of the world looks at Christians and often sees people who just get on their hands and knees and pray for things to happen that we all have the power to change. We just don't have the will or the guts or the courage to do it. But that's not what Willard's talking about. Willard's saying two things. He's saying, first of all, just do the things that you need to do if that's what you need to do. But secondly, he's also saying there are things that you can't change. You can't change another person's heart, for example. There are things inside of you you can't change, too. Scars and wounds and trauma, frustrations and anger, things that you can't control directly. No matter how hard you try, those things prove to be elusive, and you can't get away from your own trauma and your own woundedness and your own like, manifestations of unhealth. And so when you're not in control, when the best that you can do is put yourself in a position to be changed, or the best that you can do is put yourself in a position to love the person that you wish would change, then it's really helpful and really important to learn to let go of control, and that's where prayer comes in. Because if I can't pull those weeds then I should pray to the one who can and trust that God knows what God is doing. Mary can't birth this baby entirely on her own. She has this amazing body that is growing this amazing life inside of her. She is birthing a miracle. And really all she can do is all the things that are in her control, like, you know, be healthy and eat right and stay safe and all of that stuff that you can do to control the, the health of your future child. But at the end of the day, she's just got to wait. And so she praises and she prays for God to do God's part. Which leads me to the third thing that I think that we can do, and that is we can prepare for what's coming. And this is where Isaiah 40 comes in. It's one of my favorite passages, Isaiah 40. Nathan read it earlier today. And we coincidentally read it a couple weeks ago uh, when we visited a related passage. Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 3, A voice cries out, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the desert and a highway for our God, and so that every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain shall be made low, and the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all people shall see it together. 
For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God is going to do something good. God's going to do something good in you. God's going to do something good in me. God's going to do something good with us. I don't totally know what it is yet, and I don't think you do either. But in the meantime, there are a few things we can do, things that look like waiting but are actually a kind of intentional spiritual work. And the first is to praise, and the second is to pray, and the third is to prepare to clear the road of obstacles and paths. And that is, I think, very much what we are called to do as a church. To clear the road of the obstacles that cause people to stumble. Now, we can't control who's going to come down that road. We can't control when God's going to call them down that road. But when those folks come, we can make sure that the paths are as clear and straight and safe to navigate as possible. And so for those of you who are like me, who aren't good at waiting, and maybe you even struggle to praise and to pray in the midst of that waiting time, I have good news for you. You can roll up your sleeves and do some work. You can. You can clear the road, you can clear the path, you can make it straight. As long as you know that there are things you can't control and you're going to have to learn to let God bring those things about in God's own timing. And I think that's the hardest thing to do. It's ultimately a question of whether or not we really, truly, honestly are willing to believe that God will fulfill God's promises. Today, I believe it. I believe it today because we sang these songs and we shared this table and we read this passage together. Tomorrow, I might not believe it. But that's why I have you. So that you can remind me of what God's promises are. And we can wait together and allow God to do God's work in us. Amen? Today, I want to ask that you, in our final song together, we're going to sing together in just a moment. Today, I want to ask you, while we are singing this final song, to reflect on what you think God might be birthing in you. But one of the mysteries, one of the amazing, completely inexplicable, totally unexplainable things in our lives is that no matter what's going on with us, no matter what you feel like is happening to you, no matter how difficult things are or hopeless things seem, God is at work in you right now. God is always at work, creating, moving, transforming, bringing about new hope and new possibilities. So maybe you don't feel that way right now. Maybe you're tired of waiting for the good thing. But my question for you is, what do you think God might be birthing in you? What relationship is he birthing in you? What forgiveness is he birthing in you? What ministry or calling, what healing is God birthing in you? What is it that God's trying to bring about in your life? I'm going to ask that as we sing the song together that you reflect on that. Would you just stand with me and let's 
Sing together one last time.